Welcome to the Dementia Connections podcast, where each week we share the latest research, expert advice, and stories about living well with dementia. I'm Carolyn Brownlee, the editor at Dementia Connections. This week we have two stories to share about building resilience, which is an important undertaking for people living with dementia, for care partners, and for all of us. In our first story, Carrie Barenko, lead of Advanced Care Planning at Fraser Health, discusses how we can increase our future resilience through advanced care planning. In our second story, from our archive, expert coach Dr. Cozy Sydney Mackay shares the secrets to building resilience in times of adversity. As always, you'll find the full articles and the links to related resources at DementiaConnections.ca. Let's get right to the stories. Advanced Care Planning, Choose Your Substitute Decision Maker, written by Carrie Barenko. Who would make your health care decisions if you couldn't? If you are unable to make your own health care decisions when treatments are offered, health care providers seek to discuss your situation with someone close to you. They would talk about your current health, the risks and benefits and potential complications, and would want to know your values and goals to ensure decisions made align with who you are. The person or persons who consents to propose treatments are called substitute decision makers. You may have heard other terms such as proxy, attorney for personal care, representative, delegate, agent, and temporary or specific decision-maker. Legal terminology, qualifications, and requirements vary across Canada. A substitute decision-maker's role is to be your voice and to make decisions you would make for yourself. The advanced care planning process helps to ensure your substitute decision-maker is well-prepared and supported for this role. Some of us put off thinking about and choosing a substitute decision-maker. We may say things like, I'm too busy, it's bad luck, I'm too young. Most of us, however, will need someone to help us or to make our healthcare decisions at some point in our life. We may be unable to make decisions for a few hours, days, or weeks. Others may need help for longer. Three Canadians shared their stories to illustrate the importance of thinking about and choosing a substitute decision-maker before a health crisis. Story 1. An Unexpected Responsibility Last summer, a friend fell down a 100-foot waterfall. He was 21 at the time. I was 24. We all thought he was seriously injured. Some of us scrambled to get him, while others ran to get cell service and call 911. After a rescue effort and an air ambulance ride to the nearest trauma hospital, my friend only had a broken arm. But that afternoon and night, we thought that he may have had internal bleeding and a head injury, and we really didn't know what was going to happen. In the middle of the emergency department, my friend asked me to make his health care decisions if he couldn't. I said yes, but I really didn't know what that would mean. I was very glad that he never lost consciousness and was able to communicate with everyone. But I did have to talk with doctors and nurses, help make plans for where he would stay after his surgery, and understand the kind of help he would need at home. I didn't make any health care decisions for him, but I did need to help make plans. He couldn't talk, but he could always understand what they were saying to him. None of my friends had ever been through something like this, so we all talked a lot to support our friend and each other. 
I had two distinct feelings when asked to be the substitute decision maker. One, surprised that out of everyone in his life, I was seen as the person to be making big decisions regarding his medical well-being. Two, that he didn't choose his parents. Later, my friend said his choice had nothing to do with not loving his parents. It did, however, have to do with my ability to remain calm, calm and logical in crises. Story 2. How do I choose a substitute decision maker? Andrew Saunderson works in advanced care planning at Fraser Health Authority in British Columbia, supporting the implementation into routine practice. He has facilitated hundreds of advanced care planning sessions and talks with healthcare providers and the public about the importance of choosing substitute decision makers. Choosing a substitute decision maker is not about a love competition, says Saunderson. Rather than the relationship or closeness to the person being the deciding factor, it's far more important to prioritize the qualities and characteristics of a good substitute decision maker. But what makes a good substitute decision maker? Other people have told Saunderson that they want their person to be good in a crisis, a clear communicator, an advocate, aware of their values and accessible, he said. There's often a sense of relief that it doesn't have to be someone who lives the closest, is the oldest, or even knows their health best. Once you choose a substitute decision maker, he said, others who matter most to you should still be aware of your values and preferences to help mitigate potential conflict and also to increase support for the substitute decision maker in the decision making moment. Based on his experience in advanced care planning and as a social worker, he offered this advice. Remember that once you have formally chosen a substitute decision maker, that is not the end of the process, but actually just the beginning. Advanced Care Planning Canada offers these questions to help you choose a good healthcare decision maker if you become unable. Will this person serve your best interests when you are unable to make decisions for yourself? Is the person a capable adult, 18 or 19 years old, depending on the province? Do you trust this person to make decisions regarding your life, comfort, and well-being? Are you comfortable talking to this person about sensitive and difficult issues? Will this person understand your wishes and be willing to make difficult decisions on your behalf? Can this person handle differing opinions of family members and healthcare professionals and come to a decision that reflects your wishes and discussions? Is this person available and able to make the time commitment that may be required? Will this person collaborate with you and your power of attorney? Your substitute decision maker will help you make health and personal care decisions, but your attorney may be called on to exercise their powers to fund them. Story three, how can I be a substitute decision maker? My mom had a major health event in her mid sixties. Until then she was healthy and active. At the time, my two brothers and I talked regularly and made decisions based on what we thought she might want us to do. Did we know for sure? No, but we did the best we could given the situation. She recovered, which we were so thankful for. It wasn't until about four years later that mom said we were going to the lawyers and she wanted me to be the person to make her health care decisions in the future if she could not. She was diagnosed with dementia shortly after this and in the years that followed, I had to decide many things. Where she lived, when to start and stop different medical treatments, 
what pills she needed, and when she received palliative and comfort care. Did I include my brothers? Yes, I did. But it wasn't always easy. Sometimes I felt like the go-between, between the doctors and my brothers. But I kept thinking, what would mom want? Here's some advice for others. Talk more to your family and friends about what matters and about what healthcare decisions you might make, when and why. Nudge your family and friends to tell everyone in the family about the decisions you've made so everyone knows and can support each other. Advanced Care Planning Canada offers the following questions to ask yourself if you become someone's substitute decision maker. Do I understand what's important to my loved one? Do I know their health and personal care wishes? Am I willing to communicate those wishes, even if they aren't what I would choose? Am I able to communicate clearly with healthcare professionals and ask questions? Can I make difficult decisions, even during stressful times? Do I know what the legal requirements are in my province or territory? For many of us, planning is a part of daily life. We plan what to do with our days, be it taking a walk outside, dancing, watching a show, attending ceremonies, sharing knowledge, or practicing our faith. We also plan for our finances and our estate. Let's not forget to plan for our health care, too. To see the full articles and a large selection of resources that Carrie has provided, please go to DementiaConnections.ca. The Secrets to Building Resilience in Times of Adversity, written by Danae Seaton. Dr. Cozy Sidney Mackay is an author, behavioral scientist, performance psychologist, and special duty officer in the United States Navy Reserve. He brings his unique perspective and personable writing to the fore in his recent work, a book called Disrupted. The book weaves scientific research with real-life stories to help readers build resilience amid the most demanding challenges presented in life. With a PhD in Applied Management and Decision Science and in Clinical Psychology, Dr. Cozy has tremendous insight on overcoming stress in times of adversity. Here he speaks with Dementia Connections about how individuals living with dementia and their care partners can apply the strategies in his book. A dementia diagnosis is life-changing. How can we think positively while battling the fear of the unknown after a diagnosis? We make a lot of assumptions every day. We assume that tomorrow is guaranteed and that this afternoon is guaranteed and that everything is fine. True, we could use statistics and say, yeah, well, the vast majority of people will be okay. The truth is nobody ever really thinks of themselves as being in the subset that isn't in the vast majority. So working backwards for folks who are caregivers of folks with dementia and for those who are fighting through dementia is trying to remove the stigma that sometimes they place on themselves, the stigma that says, I am different. Really, we're all different. We're all dealing with different things, but because of how big and overwhelming dementia itself can be, it's very easy to focus narrowly only on how am I experiencing this? But in a broader perspective, it also gives a person the chance to grow because then it makes that person change their story around this experience. Personally, that's been my experience working with Dementia Alliance International. The vast majority of people there see themselves as being bigger than the disease they're fighting. 
they are finding that their aspirations and dreams are not over because of dementia, and they fight that disease one day at a time. And in fighting that disease one day at a time, with hope for the future, it makes it easy for the narrative to shift and change. How can a person with dementia or their care partner take a neutral approach to seemingly negative circumstances? The word motivation comes from the word emotion. You can't have motivation if you're not emotional. All of us are going to have emotions, but it's about channeling those emotions appropriately and learning when it's appropriate to bring certain emotions to the fore. I grew up on a farm and we had orange groves. If you wanted to make fresh orange juice for breakfast in the morning, you had to squeeze out the orange. I think of certain circumstances and certain stresses that come into life, such as that orange. It's my job to squeeze out all the juice I can from it because I don't have a choice at this point. Perhaps I wouldn't even plan to have my circumstances come to me at this way, but that's not my job. My job isn't really to worry about the logistics of things I can't control. The only thing I can control right now is what's in front of me. So circumstance X happened. Now I have to bring my emotions to the fore in a way that is healthy. And the most healthy experience is for me to see it for what it is. What are the three most important tools you think can help a person achieve this positive mindset? A. Be true to yourself. Part of being genuine is just being honest with ourselves. The last person I ever want to lie to is myself. So I always want to know the truth, especially when I don't want to hear it. The saying is, the truth will make you free. But really, it's the knowledge of the truth that makes you free. The truth itself is just out there. Until I know the truth, I can't be set free. So I want that knowledge of the truth to always set me free. Be present. We can't always have a hundred relationships that are close. That's not how life works. It's important for you to be a miser in the way you spend your time with the right people. Not everyone can get equal time with you. So the ones that really do get time with Engage with them, be connected with them, and be all in with them. Cell phones are turned off or turned over with no distractions. Really engage. Life is measured in moments, and when you get a bunch of moments together, that's what we remember in our relationships. Be unafraid. When I say unafraid, I mean risk a little. It's risky to believe in tomorrow especially when you're dealing with a debilitating disease and you don't know what tomorrow or next week or next year looks like. Every human should have something to look forward to, no matter how small. I think that's an important part because it really does help with our mental health as we continue looking forward and thinking about the future and being eager about the future, even if we don't know what that future looks like. Throughout the book, you often mention the importance of building relationships. How can we build strong relationships after a lack of social connection over the past few years? Vulnerability, that's the big word, capital V all the way to Y. Vulnerability is the payment all of us have to make to have relationships. And I mean real genuine relationships, not just passing relationships. That means when I'm afraid, I say the words I'm afraid, but I'm also happy to say when I have joy, that I have joy. The first step to me is having the space to be vulnerable or giving yourself permission 
to be vulnerable. Probably the hardest part is cutting out anyone or anything that stops you from being truly vulnerable or from being or from them being truly vulnerable. I don't want to be in any relationship that does not bring that level of authenticity into my life. Life is extremely short, and the last thing I need is people who are there with some version of a hidden agenda. These authentic relationships are the kind that carry you forward on your best days, on your worst days, and everything in between. Go to DementiaConnections.ca to find the link to Dr. Cozy's book, Disrupted, and a bonus reading guide, which asks excellent questions about the book. Thank you for listening to the Dementia Connections podcast. We'd love to hear what you think of the stories we shared today. Let us know your thoughts on any of our social media channels. To help our stories reach more people, please rate and review this episode or share it with a friend. Find even more helpful articles at DementiaConnections.ca, where you can also pre-order the new spring-summer issue of Dementia Connections magazine. It's an exciting issue full of inspiring stories, expert advice, and the latest news and research about dementia. Until next week, take good care.